What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Space Talk. I'm your host, Athena Brensberger. Some of you may also know me as Astro Athens, or you can also just call me your in-app astronomer here on Colin. So I'm so excited for today because we have our interview at last with Corey Powell. So um, what I'm going to do is go ahead and read his bio, and then we're going to right away jump into the conversation. So we now have a chat feature on this app, so I would love to see you guys utilize that and just type in any comments, questions throughout the entire interview. We also have the emoticons or emojis at the bottom right. So feel free to send a rocket ship if you hear something you like, a thumbs up or really anything. Um, And then by the end, depending on how we're doing with time and with you guys, um, but we'll open it up to our listeners if you want to call in and ask a question. All right, let's jump into this bio. Corey Powell is an American science writer and journalist, particularly known for his writings for Discovery Magazine, of which he became editor-in-chief in 2012, and his long-standing collaboration with Bill Nye. Powell co-authored three books with Nye, and as of 2019, co-hosted a podcast with Nye as well. Now, Corey Powell, I am so excited to chat with him today, not just about podcasting and what it takes to be a science journalist and what topics are most interesting to him, but also to get into some really fascinating subjects such as aliens, extraterrestrial, uh, searching for, for life beyond Earth, and if it's even possible. So without further ado, please put your hands together or send some emojis for Corey Powell. Corey, how are you doing? I'm good. Listen, we're, we're talking about weird science and space. What could be better? Yeah, exactly. I, I love that. We always end up getting into a tangent on space talk. So at any time, if we start to go off into something, those are typically my favorite conversations because that's kind of our stream of consciousness. Uh, and I think those could be the most interesting. Um, so, so Corey, I think the first thing I sort of want to start off asking you is out of all the areas of science, what area do you like to write about the most? Well, you know, my first love was astronomy. Actually, my very first love when I was a little kid, I, I loved plants. You know, the, the, when I first discovered the biology of plants and you can grow things from seeds and, and you know, this tiny thing turns into something that's bigger than you are, that kind of blew my mind. And then I think I just kept increasing the scale of what I was interested in. Then I like dinosaurs, and then it's like, you know what's even bigger than dinosaurs? The universe. And so somewhere (laughs) around age nine, I just became really fascinated with astronomy and, you know, always interested in kind of like the the cosmic scope of it, you know, know, galaxies, the origin of the universe, the really big questions. And, you know, that's stuck with me all through my career. I've worked in a lot of different magazines. I've worked on podcasts where we're covering a lot of different topics, but – in the end, that's my first love, and that's kind of what I keep coming back to is the the really – the big cosmic questions. Yeah, I, I feel like that's almost kind of our, our duty as conscious beings, intelligent beings who've created so much technology is to ask those big questions of like why we're here and what's going on in the universe. Because as of right now, is there really anything else out there that's possibly doing that? Well, what are your thoughts around that? Well, this is something I've thought about a lot, and I've talked to a lot of different researchers about it. And, you know, especially if you if you study the history of science, and I know that you're you are interested in kind of that sort of historical perspective as well. Mm-hmm. You know, the thinking about you know, are we alone in the universe has swung back and forth and back and forth many times through history. From you know a sense that you know this is the this is the one and only reality to oh maybe you know there. Maybe there are other stars. Maybe there are other planets. Oh, if there are other planets, maybe they're you know maybe they're inhabited. There was a time in the you know the 18th and the 19th century where it was just taken for granted that yes, of course, all the worlds of the universe are are inhabited. You know, they're probably you know things like people all over the place. Then it swung the other way, and you know in the early 20th century, the assumption was that most of the universe was dead. Uh, that maybe you know maybe Earth was unique, and then. You know, now we're back in the the expansive phase again. To, you know, to me, part of what's interesting about that is we just don't know. That you know, it, you can get very, very confident-sounding predictions that you know life is so improbable and intelligent life is so improbable. Maybe we're unique, and you can get equally impressive-sounding 
answers that, you know, life on Earth started almost as soon as our planet was potentially habitable. So clearly it must start everywhere where it could possibly gain a foothold. That, yeah. it, it's such a, I mean, it's such a rich question because it's right in front of us. You know, it, it there could be life living underground on Mars. There could be life in the oceans of Europa. There could be life right here in our solar system, and we don't know. And to me, that's kind of, you know, it's tantalizing and it's kind of maddening that, you know, if we find it one other place, just one other place, that will tell you that it's probably everywhere. But until we do that, we don't know. Yeah. Why would you say that humanity sort of went through this changing phase of kind of going back and forth between this expansive mindset, like you said, which is sort of what we have today, to during like the early 20th century, it was more so, oh, well, Earth is more special. There probably isn't life out there. I mean, I remember even when I was a kid being almost kind of laughed at by by teachers in, in elementary school saying like, how could you think that there's alien life? Like that's only in the movies. That's not real. But it's become so much more of a tangible, realistic thing to imagine because it's kind of just like what you said, you know, if there's any planet that's within this habitable region of orbiting its star and can have an atmosphere, then yeah, if the conditions are right, life can exist. So that's not that far-fetched. So why do you think so much of the human population thought that was kind of preposterous at one point? Well, this is you know, part of what I find so interesting about things like, you know, things, you know, astronomy and cosmology that seem very detached from you know, people's everyday concerns, but they're, they're completely rooted to the culture. And, you know, as the culture changes, scientific attitudes change with them. You know, I think you, you know. You, it's easy to see when you go back to historical times when people didn't even understand that you know the the other the planets were worlds. Then it could seem like you know the Earth is unique, but mm-hmm. you know there was a real, you know there was a real like late nineteenth century to the kind of like the mid twentieth century. There was a, there was a real kind of pessimism about the the universe. There, you know, people talked a lot about the heat death of the universe. Uh, and that people had a sense that you know the Earth might have been created by some, you know, our whole solar system might have been created by some unique fluke. It might be a one-of-a-kind circumstance. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I think, you know, a cultural historian would probably have a field day coming up with reasons why people thought that way. But, <laughs> yeah. but, it, but, it, but, it, but it tells you, you know, sort of how much of this, you know, how much of these attitudes really are, they're kind of subjective and they're kind of cultural. And, you know, until you get out there and you find out for real, um, you know, so much of it is driven by emotion. I mean, emotionally, I want the universe to be full of intelligent life. Um, mm-hmm. But some years ago, I was talking to Paul Davies, who's uh, he's now, uh, I think, at the University of, of Arizona. He's a, originally he's an Australian physicist and science writer. And I asked him, you know, doesn't the fact that life appeared so quickly on Earth, doesn't that tell you that life must be incredibly common in the universe? And he said, well, you know, it's actually a statistical question. Um, you can say that, you know, because you have an example of one, you can say from your example of one, since it happened quickly here, clearly it's, a, you know, it's a very easy process. It must happen everywhere conditions are right. But you can equally make a statistical argument that when you have a single sample and you, and you have essentially an you know, observation bias, we wouldn't be here to ask the question if it hadn't happened here that you can crank the numbers and say, you know, we might very well be the only intelligent life in the observable universe. So it's like something between nothing and everything was his answer. Wow. That was, you know, uh, again, you know, it's, it's a sort of a, it's a frustrating answer. You want there to be an answer, but it also yeah. says, my God, we just need to get better at looking. And, you know, there are really, <laughs> really great mysteries all around us and we just need to get answers. Yeah, I think that's the the one thing that pushes so many people to probably go into the field of astronomy is because it's like, I just want answers. I mean, what I wanted to go into, uh, like, you know, what I, oh God, how old was I? Around high school is when I got to be in my first planetarium. That wasn't just a school trip, but I got to actually learn the mechanisms of a planetarium. It was an old fiber optic one at the time. And 
I was like, I really need to pursue this because I like, I, I confident I could find the answers. You know, I'm like 16 year old, <laughs> you know, like this, this very uh, naive way of thinking, thinking I could be the one to do it as opposed to, oh, it actually is my small, my contribution can actually be one area of 10 years of work. And it's not too naive. Of course, like there's plenty of scientists out there who've made huge discoveries, but then you realize that it's, that, that there can be so many layers to just one type of discovery in space. Um, and so it, answering a huge question like that is something that can just take so long, but then there's this humi humility, humility that kind of hits you, or at least it did for me when I was, um, finally an undergraduate, finally starting to do research. And I was like, Whoa, like I knew how big space was, but I guess not really because, uh, how I thought I could go into this field and, and possibly come close to figuring out the answer, you know, as opposed to when you have like, um, biology of a small sample in front of you, you're able to sort of analyze it with, with astronomy, it's bulks and bulks of research over so many years. Um, and so I think that all that being said, um, I want to tie back to sort of science journalism here, because this is where science journalism plays a really important role for, I think a lot of people who maybe aren't researchers, maybe aren't scientists, so um, my first question, I guess, would be, why do you think science journalism plays an important role, and why did you go into it? Well, you know, I think th there are certain potted answers that people give of why, what, why science journalism is important, and yeah, you know, they're, they're not wrong that, you know, you need an informed population, you know, you need to inform citizens to make good laws, to, you know, to understand, you know, the power of science and technology, to do good in the world. I mean, those are very valid and those are important reasons. Um, I don't think they're not, you know, they're, they're maybe high-minded reasons. They're not necessarily the reasons I went into it. I was just, I was fascinated by the stories. I was fascinated by the people who, who do these things. I was fascinated by this balance between, you know, the incredible breadth of, of what we know and can know and the incredible breadth of what we don't know, and maybe we'll never know, and you know that that tension between the two, and like you know, I think over the years, as I've really kind of dug down more deeply on um, what it is that science journalism does and why I do it, you know, there's some to me there's there's some underlying values in the scientific process and the you know the things that motivate people to do it. Um, there's a, an implication of generosity. There's an implication of kindness. There's an implication of sort of exploring the outer ranges of our humanity. And I think, you know, those are terms that are not typically connected to science, but to me, they're very, very much what science is, what the scientific process is about and what science journalism is about is sort of understanding this process of getting to, getting to know the universe, getting to share what you know, of working collaboratively, uh, of thinking in terms of very long timescales beyond a human lifetime with the idea that you're you're contributing to the greater knowledge and you're trying to discover things that will make people's lives better. And I feel like, you know, there, there are these very, you know, kind of intensely core elements of what it means to be human that I see embodied in science. And believe me, you know, getting that into science journalism with, at the same time that you're putting on a pretty picture and a, and a, and a nice clickable headline it's not easy, but it's, you know, to me, it's an essential part of the craft. That's interesting. I think that that last part you were just mentioning is sort of like a, a really great picture and a clickable headline. That's, um, gosh, there's probably so many directions we can go about that. What are your thoughts then on sort of, you know, a lot of, I guess this quote unquote, the clickbait, you know, clickbait articles, clickbait, YouTube videos. Um, do you think that they still serve a purpose of some sort, or is it totally like this is something that really shouldn't shouldn't be on the internet? Um, because it, to defend that, in a sense, is sometimes the clickbait articles for me will lead me down a rabbit hole of then finding a bunch of other publications that I wouldn't have even realized or thought about if it wasn't for the clickbait. So, where, where do you stand on that? Well, you know, I'm I'm a funny age, uh, so I'm I'm in my fifties. And so, you know, I, I grew up in a world pre-internet, you know, pre-social media, pre-any of this. Uh, you know, I grew up at a time when, you know, there there were really, you know, there may be, you know, there were four or five 
major newspapers that supported science sections and supported science journalism. And there were three television networks that had evening news. And, you know, if if people were going to find out about a science story, they were going to find out there. And so, you know, the science was science, like the rest of the news, was very is very vetted, is very controlled. Everybody heard a fairly consistent narrative and it was very hard to hear things outside of that narrative. Uh, I mean, that was great in terms of quality control, but it was very restrictive in terms of the number of different voices and number of different perspectives that were out there. You know, since then, it's just like, there's more of everything. There's more good, there's more bad, there's more noise, there's Mm -hmm. more great information. And on the whole, I have to think that that's a, you know, that that's a net positive. Uh, Even with, you know, even with all the conspiracy theory things you can find on YouTube and even with, you know, these sort of nonstop scare stories about, you know, this asteroid is going to hit the earth and, and yeah, (laughs) that that, that alien cover up, you know, sort of tells you not to trust anybody. I mean that, you know, it's easier to find the, the crazies. It's easier to, easier to find the nuttiness, but it's also, you know, I feel like there's never been as much, good journalism. There's never been as much access to information as there is right now. And I feel like that that freedom and that access is very liberating. So, you know, I hate the I hate the clickbait journalism. I'm constantly, you know, I'm on Quora swatting down the flat earthers from time to time. <laughs> you know, and, I'm on, and I'm on Twitter telling people not to worry about, you know, this you know, the asteroid that's most definitely going to hit the earth in 2029, except that it's definitely not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I, you know, I'm in the thick of that. And I feel like, you know, that part, that, that's sort of, that goes, that's part of the job that goes with the territory. But I have to say on the whole, I feel like this situation as crappy as it is, is way better than the situation in which you, you really had to trust, you know, Walter Sullivan at the New York times is setting the science agenda for all newspaper publishing and there, you know, and there's, you know, an editor at Scientific American who is setting the standard for all magazine journalism and there are three television networks and that's pretty much it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you have to, you know, those were very smart people and they did fantastic jobs, but you have to put a lot of faith into a very small number of people in the old system. And now, you know, faith is distributed for, for better or for worse. Yeah. Wow. I want to go back to what you were saying about going on like Cura, Cura, Cura. I've been on it several times, but it's still such a weird word to pronounce. Um, how? And it's, and, it's, and it's a weird world. But it, you know, it, it, it is. It really, it really is. It's a it's a collection of weirdos. Which Gosh. Is yeah. How do you do it? How do you? Because I that's like one thing I really. Um, I almost just like try to avoid it just because I will get so like, sometimes I'll just get anxious about it or I'll get like emotional. Um, and, and it'll actually bother me. And sometimes I try to actually handle it pretty like balanced and level-headed, you know, as you mentioned, like speaking to, you know, people about like, you know, flatter theory is one thing. And I, I've definitely gone into conversations with people about it before. Cause I do think hearing what the argument is, is, is I think as important, um, for, for me to try to even rebuttal it, but, um, it, it, there's only so much, I think a lot of us can handle. So if, is this something you do like frequently, like, is it on a weekly basis and how do you, how do you do it? <laughs> Give me some advice. <laughs> um, I, I do it on a completely ad hoc basis. And it's usually when I'm procrastinating or I'm bored or, <laughs> um, but you know, look, what, what I, what I find interesting about, you know, yeah, especially you know, about, about being on Twitter or about being on things like like Quora, where you, you know, where you can you can encounter a lot of self styled skeptics and you can encounter a lot of conspiracy theorists. Um, you know, first of all, it's interesting to find out how they think and how they argue. It's uh, it's interesting to see often just how few of them you there are because you start to see the same names over and over again and you start to realize that a lot of things that seem like, you know, like like the world is being overrun by idiots is actually the world is being overrun by a fairly small number of extremely loud idiots. And in a weird way that, <laughs> that, that made me feel better. <laughs> um, but, but also you know, there, there are ways of engaging that are designed to continue the fight. And there are ways of engaging that are designed to address any onlooker who might be wondering if this is nonsense or not. And, mm. you know, a lot of people engage for the fight. And that's sort of, it's sort of the, you know, it's the natural adrenaline driven response is, you know, 
somebody somebody says something ridiculous and you just kind of want to put them in their place. Mm-hmm. But when you respond, not really to them, but just to any random onlooker who might be wondering what's really going on, and you don't try to ramp up the adrenaline, the strange thing is you actually get a lot less of the, you know, the pylons from the crazies because they, you know, you're, you're, you're not activating them. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, you know, I have something like, I have about 80,000 Twitter followers and I get very, very few, you know, cranks and, and angry responses. And, but partly, you know, being a, being a dude in his fifties is great for not getting harassed, but is also, you know, that I try to engage in a way that just doesn't invite it. Yeah, that's, 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 you know, that's a really good approach to sort of think about is, is, yeah, it's when you, it's sort of like this yoga technique I learned once is if say you're on a call with someone and and you get, start to get frustrated instead of that response, like you said, like racking up the adrenaline, you just push the phone away and exhale and then start to, you know, really collect yourself and then respond rather than reacting. Um, And that, that's, that's, I think that's why I tend to just not even answer a lot of a lot of things that come through sometimes that are in that realm of conspiracy because it 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 may take like a little bit more energy but it sounds like it's quite in a way rewarding especially for those who would be like you said be onlookers um and be be sort of peering in because it's all of them who are also being affected like those who might read or see a video um that they might say, oh, well, actually, I don't exactly know how to prove if the earth is spherical or not. So hmm, maybe they're onto something here, you know, and it's for them to sort of have maybe this, you know, they read a comment by you. It can be like a short kind of like tip or lesson or something. It's a good teachable moment. Um, so yeah, also, I, I, I love the, the flat earth is a teachable moment. It's like, okay, we know the earth is a sphere. How do you know it? It's like, okay, mm-hmm. well, let's, let's ignore that you know, there are astronauts and satellites and, you know, and 2,000 years of navigating the planet. How do you personally, you know, sitting in your room, know that the Earth is a sphere? Well, you know, you can watch the sun rise and you can watch it set. You can get a pair of solar glasses that let you see the size of the sun and see that the apparent size of the sun does not change during the day. And then you can ask a friend in a different time zone to do the same thing, or you can, or you can just call somebody in a different time zone and ask them, "Is the sun up in the sky?" And uh, you know, if it's up in the sky in California and it's already set in New York, well, you know, watching the sun move through the sky over the course of a day and yeah. talking to a friend in a different time zone that gives you three, three-dimensional information that tells you every single thing you need to know to prove that the Earth is a sphere. You can do it in a day. You can do it with one, you know, one phone call or one text. Um, and it is absolutely ironclad geometric proof. So, you know, and I find that when I say that on Quora, you know, that's, that's one of those things that just, it doesn't produce a lot of conversation because when the person comes back says, yes, but, uh, but according to a NASA, uh, you know, document that I found in 1956 in which they plotted things according to a flat plan, it's like, I don't care. This is, this is something you, you want, something you can prove to yourself. This is something you can prove to yourself. Yeah. Uh, so, so I enjoy that kind of thing. And, you know, maybe that is a little bit of grandstanding on my part, but I feel like it's at least somewhat productive grandstanding. Oh, definitely. For sure. I mean, and plus, you know, on top of that, it's, it's kind of the, the core idea of science communication as well, which I think is extremely important. Um, and that's what you do as, as, a, as a science writer and journalist. Um, so kind of on, like, I guess, journalism again uh, what topic would you say science topic trends the most well you know uh, I, i've been thinking about this because you know every publication wants to try to figure out you know what's gonna what's gonna sell what's gonna get people to i mean it used to be what's gonna sell on the newsstand now it's you know what's gonna get people to click um mm-hmm. and there are certain things that are surefire hits um if you mentioned i you know if you mentioned aliens if you mentioned einstein and relativity you mentioned, you know, warp drive and time travel. You mentioned black holes. Um, you know, those, those are those are kind of consistent crowd pleasers. You know, the the whole idea of like, you know, the, the search for life in the universe. The things that surprise me more, um, wherever you mentioned the sun, <laughs> whenever I tweet about the sun, people are fascinated by the sun. You know, 
you know, sunspots and, and solar flares and, and, you know, coronal mass ejections and, and you know, could they affect the earth? Um, th that always produces a strong reaction. But I think the thing that, that surprised me the most is the actual, the, the machinery of how you, of, you know, scientific equipment, you know, how you, how the James Webb Space Telescope works, uh, you know, how the, uh, the Ingenuity Mars helicopter works. Just, you know, the actual engineering problems of how you do these things and how people came together to figure them out. Uh, those stories produce really, really strong responses. Uh, and I, you know, that sort of, that kind of surprised me at first, but I think, you know, it's the, it's the tangibility of it. It's, you know, it's bringing it back to the idea that, you know, if you want to, you want to fly around on Mars, that's a really difficult problem. And it took somebody, you know, years of really dedicated effort and they came up with some really cool technology and they also did a lot of it with just like components that they yanked out of a cell phone <laughs> uh, or you know the james webb space telescope is this, you know, it's this huge complicated machine but in its heart is a little thing that looks like an old an old record turntable that has a bunch of little filters on it that has to rotate just right and has to be lubricated with a lubricant that's still turns when the temperature is just above absolute zero and you know i tweeted out a picture of that and people went crazy over that because all of a sudden you can understand oh that's how it works it's not just it's not just an idea it's not just a thing you read about somebody built this and figured every single little detail of this out and you know it bring, it reminds people that you know you everyone you know everyone can be a part of that step-by-step -step process if you want to you know, it's not one giant miraculous thing that happened far, far away. It was a lot of people coming together, working together with a common goal to make this happen. Yeah, I think that's exactly why it's it goes so viral and it's so so popular is because of that human element. Yeah. Oh, and, and pretty pictures. Any, any, any and pretty, pretty pictures. pictures. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> any, anytime you can, you can actually imagine yourself like. What, what would it be like to you know, be cruising around through the rings of Saturn? People love that too. And I love that. Yeah, no, I, I do as well. Um, and that makes sense too, also about the sun and why that would be a popular subject because too, if you're tweeting any images about the sun, it's just crazy to think about that. That's what it looks like when, you know, it looks very different when you just sort of catch it through the glimpse of your eye every time you, I don't know, happen to look up at a cloud and, and then the sun pops out. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean don't, don't you have days when you look up and you suddenly think, oh, there's like this weird glowing ball in the sky and it's made out of like hydrogen that's slowly fusing into helium and it's turning mass into energy and if it ever stopped, we'd all die, but it keeps going for billions of years. Isn't that kind of weird? <laughs> oh, that's so, it's so great. If that's not a tweet, that needs to be a quotable tweet and that'll be from this episode. <laughs> Um, so other than science, have you ever dabbled in other areas of writing, such as like creative or fictional? Yeah, you know, uh, bits and pieces. I mean, I do them mostly as as exercises, you know, just to kind of like, you know, to, to explore different styles of voice or just to kind of clear my head. Um, I can't say that I've ever done any, you know, I've never, I've never published any creative writing, uh, or at least not since, not since my college days, which we won't count. Um, uh, you know what? I, so I have to admit. So here's one very weird genre that I like to dabble in. Uh, I like to write uh, the scripts to trailers for imaginary movers, imaginary movies, specifically imaginary sequels, like uh, huh. like like yeah, like a sequel to Titanic or um, or a retelling of uh, Predator from the point of view of the Predator. Uh, Wait, that sounds awesome. And have, have you published this anywhere? Uh, no, these are just things I write for myself. <gasps> if you want, you know, afterward I can share the, uh, the, the trailer script for Predator, the true story, um, told from the point of view of the wife of the Predator who uh, hunted Arnold Schwarzenegger. The answer is uh, these are not things that I do even remotely seriously. Um, I, I've also I, I tried doing uh, little creative writing projects with my daughters um the, the, oh that's so these, great yeah these are just these are just things to kind of get you out of your head and out of your normal way of of writing uh they're not you know they're not art <laughs> they're i don't i can't even guarantee that they count as a as, as pulp literature but but um but they're they're fun they're exercises
I'm sure. I'm sure they're awesome. I think you're being very humble about it, but we'll see. We'll see. I think it's going to be cool. I definitely would love to read that later. Um, so if I want to kind of jump a little bit into podcasting, sure. so you, I believe you have an upcoming podcast soon, right? Like your own show that you're doing with Bill Nye, or was it one that you guys had already started and now it's a new season coming out? Right. So, so I, I, I did, uh, two, two seasons of the science rules podcast with Bill Nye. And that included, uh, sort of two, what we call bonus seasons of uh, solo episodes that he did, uh, specifically about information through the, through the COVID pandemic. Um, so, you know, the, we, the big shows we did jointly, the, the COVID shows, I was the producer and, and, uh, he did them solo. So we did those for two years. Um, then we worked on a TV show together, which will be coming out on uh, NBC and Peacock in the summer called The End is Nigh, because uh, pretty much everything with Bill Nye has a pun in it. So, <laughs> of course. <laughs> so we worked on this TV show, The End is Nigh. Um, and uh, unfortunately, Bill got so busy with the TV show and some of his other projects uh, that for now, our podcast is on sort of indefinite hiatus. I, I hope it will come back, but I don't have a date for that. So while I was not working with Bill and working on other projects, I got involved with a with a um, with a couple of other science editors and with an investor, and we created a foundation to promote science literacy, which, in a burst of creativity, is called the Science Literacy Foundation. Wow! And then, uh, <laughs> and, and then uh, I was talking with uh, Brian Cohen, who uh, who. Help, who co-founded and provided the funding for the Science Literacy Foundation. And he said, you know, we always have fun when we talk. What if we do a podcast together? And I said, well, that's great timing because I just found, you know, Bill is kind of overcommitted at the moment. I'd love to get back in the podcasting world. So it's tentatively called Champions of Science. Um, we're just at the very early planning stages, so I don't have a, you know, I don't have a release date yet. But we are... You know, we're, we're putting together guest lists. We're doing we're doing some of the some of the basics. I would call this a sort of a, a coming soon kind of pitch. Coming soon, champions of science. And the idea is you know, just to talk to all the different people who are trying to turn science into a more positive force in the world. So they would that would be they'd be researchers. It would be engineers. It would be it would include activists. It would also include science communicators. Um, you know, it's 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 all the people who are what I would call science cheerleaders in the very best sense of the word. You know, not just yeah. not just not just telling you that you're you're stupid if you don't pay attention to science because there's more than enough of that, but really to to make a serious effort to use uh, science and scientific understanding to improve people's lives. Yeah, to improve people's lives. I think that's so great. It probably answers the question I was about to ask, which is you know kind of the main why do this. So we understand why science literacy has tons of important values, I think, to provide to humanity, um, especially just, you know, as we evolve more and more into the internet era. But why would you say that that's something that is so important enough to actually create a podcast around? Yeah, listen, it's, it's a great question. And, you know, when we started the foundation and then when we started talking about this podcast, we, you know, we need to put together a mission statement. <clears throat> you know, you need to give the, you know, the one to two sentence pitch of why you're doing it and why it matters. And it's surprisingly hard. You know, the first, your first impulse is, well, because, you know, science is important and it's, it's like how people learn about stuff and things. And actually, you know, providing a, you know, a more meaningful, articulate answer is hard. But, you know, look, I mean, there, there are, the, you know, the, there are the, the the sort of the nuts and bolts answers that, um, you know, that if people don't understand the scientific process and don't understand kind of how we learn about the world, then they're, you know, they're easy prey for, for scams and cons and, yeah. and just for, you know, for unproductive life decisions. Um, but we were talking about this earlier. There's also, you know, there's also this kind of like, there's a, there's a sort of a, a a generosity and a kindness and, a, and an excitement that comes with really understanding how to interact with the world around you 
in ways that leave you knowing more and then ways that, that help you make better decisions. Uh, you know, not, you know, not just better decisions of like, you know, which laundry detergent is better for the environment or, you know, or do I want to insulate my house, but also just better decisions about, you know, how do you take information and decide what's legitimate and what you want to do about it? You know, we deal, we deal with this all the freaking time. You know, we ha you have to make decisions a million times a day. Um, and, you know, we have these hardwired processes in our brains that are pretty good a lot of the time. But when you understand how science works and what it can do and what it can't do, you can do a little bit better. And I, I feel like, you know, even if it's just a little bit better, that's worth it. Yeah, that's so, uh, yeah, that's so well said as far as a, such a great reason for, I think, more people to apply almost a scientific method to like their everyday lives as well. Um, especially with like things like you said, that decision making. So would this be more targeted for adults or is it something maybe also like teens or kids could listen to? Well, I mean, this, so this, this podcast is definitely, you know, I, I call it, you know, it's, it's sort of a anything, anything from like a, from a smart teen on up. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I've, I've learned to respect the minds. I, I have a, I have a 15 year old daughter, so I've, I've learned to respect the minds of a, of a 15 year old. Um, yeah. they, can be, they can be, uh, a little more, uh, insightful and suspicious and, and aware than you may think. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, these are, they're, they're not intended to be kids conversations. Although again, I have to tell you, I find that you can have pretty high level conversations even with with quite a young audience, you know, if you're not talking down to them, and I'm sure you've discovered this as well in your podcast, that you know, if you're genuine in your enthusiasm and you're not trying to put on the voice of a person who's telling you something very, very important, and you don't do that, you know, mm -hmm. you can you can share a surprising amount of information, you know, all, all the way down to you know, thirteen, twelve, eleven, ten, uh, you know, you know, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of grasp at a, at a very young age. Yeah, there, there definitely is. I, I've actually worked with um, a STEM-based school called Dexter, and they now have an incredible online platform um, called Dexter TV. And uh, the ages of students that I work with uh, or that I do you know, these streams with um, really can just range so much. Um, there's, you know, eight-year-olds learning how to code through, um, scratch and, and, you know, and there's so many things that they're able to sort of just understand and, and process as long as it's, um, yeah, I guess sort of, sort of delivered in a digestible way or through experiments, hands-on things. And it, that, that, that learning and that seeing sort of the, the, the click of like, ah, I get it. it I think it's just such an exciting moment. Um, yeah, it's very exciting, and, and you know, because there's such a difference between somebody not knowing something and somebody not being able to understand something. I think that's you know, you know, uh, you know, a lot of you know, even a lot of professional science communicators. I feel like they they get confused about that, or they blur the boundaries. That that if you haven't been exposed to a piece of information, that means that you don't that you're not capable of understanding that information. But that's really not true. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so there's also one more thing you're going to be releasing soon. Um, it's a magazine called Open Mind. So can you talk to me a little bit about that? That's exciting, by the way. So congrats. What is it going to launch and what's it going to be about? Thank you. So yeah, so this is, a, this is sort of all part of the same agenda. Um, this also grew out of the Science Literacy Foundation that I was working on. Um, I, I'm working with my friend Pam Weintraub, who we were editors at discover magazine together. I was the editor in chief and she was the executive editor with me. And then we worked on a number of other projects. We ended up, uh, picking up a couple other, uh, great science journalists along the way working with, um, this guy, Brian, who founded the, the foundation and, you know, we missed journalism. Um, it's the modern world. So the yeah, open mind is going to be a digital magazine. It's launching uh, later this month. Uh, we, it's tentatively launching, I think, Mar March 21st, whatever that Monday is. Um, mm -hmm. It's, uh, so it's... Yep, you know, it, the 21st. It's, yeah, there we go. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, we're, we're aiming for a, a March 21st launch. We have a bunch of pieces in process. We're just working through the, the technical details of, you know, can we 
flick the switch on the 21st. Um, but it's, uh, it's very much in the spirit of what you and I have been talking about here. You know, it's looking at science controversies, looking at, you know, at conspiracy theories, looking at debates, looking at, um, you know, the, the overarching thing is looking at ways that science plays out in, in big issues in society, uh, and specifically looking at the ways that it's not communicated in a really productive way and looking at how we can do better. So, you know, that means everything from you know, finding a better way to talk about nuclear energy, finding a better way to talk about uh, the possibility of a, of a lab leak for, you know, related to COVID. So you know, touching on you know, some of the, some hot button issues like that, but also touching on things like, uh, you know, I, I just worked on a piece um, with the writer, Phil Ball. He's going to be one of our, one of the early pieces in the magazine about, uh, about private space flight and about the very conflicted feelings that people have toward, toward Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and, you know, people who are doing on the one hand, tremendous work to open, access to to space you know, cutting the cost of rocketry on the other hand you know for a lot of people who kind of grew up in the era of you know for all mankind or for all humankind the idea that you know that space belonging to everyone the idea of the commercialization of space is a very sort of touchy and kind of uncomfortable topic and so you know it's really my goal is always to talk about things that people aren't talking about um, which isn't to say, you know, it's not topics people aren't talking about because people talk about everything, but mm -hmm. there are certain ruts that people get into where, you know, like all this lab leak debate, okay, there's this evidence that it was and this evidence that it wasn't. And, you know, the overwhelming evidence is that it has a natural cause, but you can't rule out the possibility of a lab leak. So we're not doing that. We're doing an article of, okay, what has happened in the past? What are the actual safety protocols? When have there been actual lab leaks? What happened? And we're not trying to rerun the debate. We're looking at the actual background of how does this work? What's what's actually you know what what do we know of what has happened in the past and what lessons did we take from them? So that's the sort of like that's sort of the overarching goal here is to take the stories that everybody's talking about and to try to talk about them in a different way so that when you're done reading it, you can think, okay, maybe I can now like. It's like all this noise I can filter out, and here is actually you know a, a new way to think about it that's maybe a little more productive that actually leads to you know an action or a solution or a, or it's kind of like a, at least a more productive conversation. Um, it's a uh, it's a sort of a lofty goal for a for a tiny digital magazine, but hey, you got to try. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, I'm excited to read about the privatization of space I, um, article. I think that's going to be really because that definitely is a sensitive subject, um, and there's so many uh, viewpoints you for sure can have, and we can have all. I think a lot of us have probably have mixed feelings about it. Um, so I'd love to read what, what you write in that, because um, I think that's going to be really, really interesting. So definitely let us know when that launches. I'll be sure to put it in the caption um, when we finish today's episode. Um, so I know that we're coming close on the hour. Um, so I wanted to see if maybe we could do a speed round of a few questions sure. about history. So I know that you are a history buff. You love history, um, I believe, from what we were talking about, our emails. So if you could go back in time and relive a specific scientific discovery, what would it be and why? Ooh, now that's a hard one. Um, hmm. Well, I think, you know, look, going back to the time of the invention of the telescope, um, because, you know, it was not, it's not just Galileo. There, there, were, there were a whole group of early observers who were suddenly seeing parts of the universe that had never been seen before. And that would certainly be a very cool time. The, um, the moment, the invention of spectroscopy, which is a, sort of a more obscure moment, it was the first time when people understood that you can say what the stars are made of, that, you know, it's, that it's actually possible, at least conceptually, to touch the stars, kind of reach across space and, you know, touch and smell and sense uh, the entire universe. Um, that period in the, uh, like the mid-19th mid century I think is a very cool one, but listen, I would also, I would love to go back 
you know, 4,000 years, you know, so be, before any of the, or maybe 5,000 years, before any of the recorded astronomy, um, somebody's going to have to give me some language lessons to figure out how to talk to people then. But, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but if, uh, if, you're, if you're giving me the power, I would love to go back then and actually understand what people really thought about about the universe, uh, what they really thought about the sky. Did they really think of the stars as souls or did they have a, a you know, sort of a physical conception that, that Earth is this thing that existed in a, in a larger space? Because I feel like that whole history is, is lost. You know, we have, we have passed down fragments of what people thought, but we really don't know what the, sort of what the nature of the, the mind was back then and what the, and sort of how people really felt in their bones. I would love to know that. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. I think that would be really interesting. And to learn the languages, uh, go, I think going back to a time where there really was zero light pollution would probably be really, really cool. Uh, well, yeah. minus of course, during a full moon, but other than that, I think that would yeah, be, maybe, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll bring binoculars with me and that'll really blow my mind. Whoa, it's so crazy. You just said that. I was actually going to say the next question is you're put on a deserted island for a week and you can only bring one of these two items. Would you bring a telescope or binoculars? Mm, deserted island. Um, if it's a deserted island, if it's a good telescope, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take the telescope because when else are you going to get the, the time and the opportunity? And I'm, I'm, is, is there is the palm tree blocking a lot of the sky, or can I cut? Down <laughs> you well, you. As much as I hate to cut down that palm tree, if I've got a telescope and only a week, I might cut down the palm tree. You could definitely cut down the palm tree. Yeah, yep. so I guess. I cut down the palm tree. I'll take the telescope. Would it have it would have to be probably a small telescope because what if you have to build up base camp and go hiking and get get wood and everything? You could carry binoculars around easier, or telescope it is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm picturing, you know, that, that sort of like classic, you know, tropical island that's like just a little bit larger than one person. And there's one palm tree in the middle. And if it's that, island, <laughs> I've, got, I've got, a, got a case of food and a telescope. I'm good. Yeah, you won't be going anywhere. Okay, good answer. A little bit of a space future now. Do you think settling on another planet is a good idea? Uh, if we're, as, as part of a, uh, as, as part of a scientific mission, absolutely. And I think that's, Good. I, I think I would love to see. I would. I would have loved to have had, you know, a scientific outpost on the moon, just as, you know, as a straight follow up to Apollo. You know, imagine if that had been the next stage, and there had actually been the funding and the public support for that. You'd have an amazing research station on the moon. I mean, we're at the stage now where you could where you could do that on Mars. You know, mm -hmm. look, I think in the very very long term, you know, I do think, you know, the nature of our species is to keep expanding. And, you know, if there are other places that where, where we could live, whether it's on the surface of Mars or whether it's in a hollowed out asteroid or whether it's in free floating spaceships, I think, you know, I think sooner or later, those things will happen. Um, but, you know, getting back to what we were talking earlier about, you know, about you know, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and sort of the future of space. You know, if, you're, if we're going out into space, you want to think that, you know, we're doing our best not to take all of our problems here and just take them with us. <laughs> you want to try to do something better. Mm -hmm. So I don't, really know, I don't know what that looks like, but I would like to at least have people, you know, make, you know having that conversation um, and thinking about, okay, if there's a, you know, if there's a Mars settlement, what does it look like? How does it operate? You know, how, how is it, how could you possibly make that self-sustaining and into something that could keep, going and going and then you know then where do you go from there but you know i love you know i i'm a big fan of expanse i love the yeah, i love the idea of humanity um you know expanding through space but i also think that you know human nature is just human nature and so there's always me the challenge of you know how you how you expand in a way where you know you're you're representing your 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 best self rather than your worst self yeah, completely agree with that. You're you're not going to want to. Oh, that's this is why I think there's a lot of psychology tests for for astronauts. Um, just because you truly experienced cabin fever, with which most of the population probably experienced, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, and it's still going on. Um, for I guess no, I don't think there's really too much too much quarantine that's happening as much. But cabin fever was definitely a thing. A lot of 
us felt in 2020. Um, so yeah, I can only I, imagine. I know, I know, I know we're almost out of time here, but I just want to throw it. You know, so I, I did an interview with a researcher named Kim Binstead, uh, mm-hmm. who used to run the High Seas program for NASA, which is you know, is a yeah. long duration program. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, when you put people in isolation, um, like the first three months, even the first six months, they kind of cruise through it because you know they're they're waiting to get to the end. And it's it, it's pat, it's at the six month mark that you really find out you know, like who wants to murder who and who's you know and and who is really you know who's very calm and who just kind of completely loses it. Uh, she said, you know, I would not I would not want to go with anybody to Mars before they've been isolated for a year on Earth because you don't know what people are until you see them in that situation. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that is very, very true. I'm, I'm actually hoping to get some of my friends on this, this podcast who've been part of High Seas. Uh, would you ever do High Seas? Uh, well, my family would kill me. In the abstract, um, you know, if, I didn't, if I didn't have other people relying on me, I right. think it would be, fasc- be fascinating to do that. Uh, you know, it's, it, as soon as other people are counting on you, all these things become more complicated. Uh, I, oh gosh, I, I, can, I can only imagine. I've been hearing that from a lot of my friends who are parents now. So maybe, maybe when your daughters grow up, they'll they'll join the high seas mission, and you can do it with them. But do you think that could that could be pretty fun, or not? Depending on. <laughs> as long as we're not the ones who end up killing each other. Yeah, this is true. Um, so I have one more question, and then maybe we can turn it to the audience. Um, so sure. if anyone there has any questions, you guys can either type it in the chat, or I can open it up for you guys to call in. The last question is, do you think that if humans find alien life, would it be first in our own solar system other than Earth or uh, some other exoplanetary system? Uh, my gut feeling, which is really just based on you know, it's, it's sort of naive impressions and not on any inside knowledge, my gut feeling is that there is microbial life somewhere else in this solar system, you know, maybe Europa, maybe Enceladus, maybe buried on Mars. And if it's in the solar system, um, then you can actually collect samples of it. You can study whether it has DNA. I mean, there will be no ambiguity about it. Um, when we're finding possible signs of life on planets around other stars, you know, there's going to be a long period of uncertainty. I mean, there, there will be a report like, oh, we found the, you know, an Earth-sized planet that's an Earth that's an Earth-like temperature. Oh, we found evidence that it has an you know an oxygen atmosphere. Oh, we found evidence that it has an oxygen atmosphere and traces of methane, and that's really strong circumstantial evidence of life. Um, there's going to be a lot of reports like that, and, but you know, short of actually having you know ET sending a message to us, it's going to be very hard to know to absolutely know. I mean, that's why, you know, in many ways, I think the most exciting thing is people looking for, for techno signatures, people, you know, with the you know, technological evidence of alien life. Uh, you know, if you could actually see city lights on another planet, uh, or if you could see, you know, giant arrays of solar cells on another planet. Something, wow. like, that, something like that. And, you know, there, it's now, these are now NASA funded projects. So they're, they're underway. And yeah. that would be really cool. I mean, so I, I think, I mean, to, to answer your question quickly, I think any definitive, definitive answer is probably going to come in our solar system, and I think it's probably going to be yes. Um, but, you know, getting answers from deep space, uh, unless you get a signal from somebody saying hello, it's going to be really, really hard. And, you know, it's going to be frustrating because there are going to be answers that seem like it's really, really, really likely that there's life on this planet, but we don't know for sure. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, the techno signatures, I'm going to look into the, some of those research projects. I actually didn't, didn't really know that. Didn't know too much about that. And to think about, imagine seeing city lights on a planet. Oh, that would, that would be, that would be pretty exciting. That would be pretty cool. I can only imagine what that would look like. Yeah. Imagine, yeah. You, you start to intercept, you know, you know, you know, alien advertising campaigns and things like that. Who knows what you'd find? Yeah. Oh gosh. Imagine like, billboards. Wow. Exactly. 
That'd be cool. Um, so that was my final question. So what I'm going to do is give everyone a chance to maybe think up of any question. I'll pl- do a short music break. So Corey, feel free to maybe uh, go grab a glass of water. Anyone else? Um, I'll stay on here for maybe about another five to 10 minutes to see if anyone else wants to answer a question. So if you guys want to think of something, you can either tap the call in button below or you can type it in the chat and I'll hop back on in about, about 30 seconds or so. Alrighty, let's hop back in. So one more chance if anyone wants to call in, if you have any questions, you can do that now. Otherwise, for future listeners who are listening to this um, after it's been recorded live, leave a comment um, below. There is a comment section. Um, and if I get to see any of your questions, maybe um, I could do another episode and, and try to answer them or send it over to Corey. Maybe he could answer it. Um, but either way, uh, this has just been so awesome. It looks like we've got a caller. So... Mario, you are on the mic. How's it going? Hi, hi hello. Great. It's going great. Yeah. Hello, Mario. Oh, hi, hello. Hello, Corey. So, uh, oh, so, okay. So, my question is I'll, I'll keep it quick. Yeah. So, I'm not a science writer yet. I mean, but so, so when you're, when you're like writing for, when you're, you know, writing, you're rethinking what you're writing, how do you consider your audience? And what I mean by that is, well, I don't write prolifically as you do, but I do talk about science. People ask me questions about space. I'm known for that person. You know, they see what I'm wearing, you know, and they're like, you know, they see like my, like my laptop background or like, you know, people know me and like, oh, you know, am I talking to like, you know, someone else, someone, someone else that's like taking physics class or like over another science or like a coworker or someone I know, like, you know, with the job is. I can gauge, you know, what expertise they have, what knowledge they have, and I can appeal to that you know, to, to get them interested, to make sure they don't get lost. But, you know, but that's because I'm talking to them face-to-face. You know, but when you're writing, you know, ideally you're trying to cast a really wide net. So you want to encompass as much people as possible, but, you know, you you can't interact with them one-on-one every single time, everywhere. So what do you do to try to cast that wide net? Sure. Look, I, I think the, the 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 biggest mistake that people make is that they psych themselves out over that question. Um, you know, they, they they sort of imagine that there is a you know there's a there's a voice for writing that is totally different than the voice you would use if you were actually talking to someone, and they end up writing either in this very sort of simplistic style or in this very sort of stiff and formal style uh, because you know we've sort of been taught. A, that writing is this formal process and that writing is, you know, it's Socratic or it's didactic or, you know, there's something, you know, kind of high-minded about it. You know, ideally, you know, when you're writing, it should have the same tone as, as the conversation, you know, it, you know, you should, st- you should still, you should hold on to those conversations that you have with friends uh, and think about, you know, sort of what they responded to. And what I usually find is you know, what people respond to is when you just, you just tell the idea. You know, the, you know, the reason that jargon is a problem is because it gets in the way of the idea. The reason that, uh, you know, that some of these, you know, sort of like the stiff structures of a journal article gets in the way is because it's not familiar to people. So, you know, if you sort of let go of some of your preconceptions of what writing is supposed to be, I really think of, of writing in ter- you know, just in terms, of, in terms of voice, and you really, you know, you write something down and literally 
read it out loud. I mean, that was one of the first, you know, it's a painful technique when, when you're a new writer, but after you're done writing a piece, you know, you stand in front of a mirror, you read it to yourself out loud. And if it sounds ridiculous, if, it's, if it sounds like you're an imposter, then you're probably not, you know, writing in your own voice. Um, I don't know. Athena, what do you think? I think that's great. I never read like anything in front of a mirror other than like maybe when I, I did some theater and it was like trying to memorize a monologue, but that's really good. Um, I think that I might actually take that tip for what I even do, just like my scripts for like YouTube videos and science communication stuff. Um, I think that would probably be really uh, a helpful tip. And I would say exactly the core, like what you said, you know, it's just sort of having a conversation with people. Um, like Mario, by the way, I, I got to meet him in, in Los Angeles at a, a space talk event. And, um, and he was dressed like head to toe in this space suit. Uh, no, okay. It was, a, it was a formal suit, but it was spacey. Um, and so that's, I totally get that. You know, it, it's like you have a, a spacey laptop, you're going to get into conversations with people at the coffee shop or at the airport. And, it's about, and it, you know, it's just about, yeah, talking with them. Um, and then I think that the biggest thing I've sort of learned was just sort of saying, I don't know about certain things. And even here on Space Talk, you guys have asked some really awesome, but super complex questions that are out of my realm of expertise, like in particle physics. And I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm going to get a particle physicist on here and I'm going to get the answer for you. And if there isn't an answer, because it isn't a lot of straight answers when it comes to that stuff, um, then we'll, we'll, we'll start to figure out it together and, and explore the different theories. So that's, that's probably what I would say as well is, is doing that. Yeah, here, I'll, I'll add one little story because you, you just triggered a memory. Uh, years ago, when I was the news editor at Discover Magazine, um, and I, I was, I had a I had a good friend. On, it, was, it was one of the features editor there, and we would we bounce ideas past each other. And one of my news writers wrote a wrote a story. I don't even remember, I don't remember what it was, but the opening sentence was, "When a spacecraft, and you know, there's something about some you know some new NASA mission, and." Uh, my friend Wendy just started just burst out laughing. She's like, "Nobody is going to get past the words when a spacecraft." <laughs> That's like you would never start a conversation with, you know, when a spacecraft. You know, <laughs> you want to tell a story. You, you're talking about something. You're not. And so this became a joke that whenever we would see a story that was written in this very sort of, you know, sort of fake self-conscious style, she would say, "Ah, when a spacecraft." <laughs> oh, it's so great. It's like, it's like you want to tell the story like you're telling a story, like you're actually talking. You don't want to say when when a spacecraft goes off course on its way to the sun, uh, engineers find you know you know you don't want to you know just just don't start down that path because you know it's it's hard to come back once you're once once you're in writing mode rather than storytelling mode. It's it's hard to come back. So you know do whatever you can to to stay off that merry-go-round. Yeah. Wow. Well, I think that was, that was a great question, Mario. Um, thank you so much for, for calling in and for asking that. Yeah. And thank you for answering my question. Of course. Alrighty. Um, so if anyone else wants to call in and ask a question, just go ahead and tap that call in button. Um, I didn't see any other ones coming through in the chat. So I'm just going to give everyone just another moment um, to maybe call in if you guys had any questions. But otherwise, I think that was a great story, Corey. Uh, and it, it makes me think about and or, and slash or. I write that all the time in, in messages just because that actually is the case. It's either and or it's or uh, with certain objects. But then I don't actually say that when I'm speaking to people. Uh, it's just kind of strange. And I think that that's a funky thing about the English language. Uh, I wonder if other languages are, are like that. I think some are a little bit more precise sometimes, but we have we we got our slangs, especially Brooklynites. What up? Um, what up, Brooklyn in the house? Oh, that's that's so exciting. We'll we'll have to meet up sometime and grab a coffee and go to the Hayden Platinum. But um, absolutely, so, yeah. So I just have to. So wait, you were born in Methodist Hospital, right? Yeah. Yep. All right. So so this so this my voice. This pod, this half of the podcast is coming from Park Slope about 500 feet away from where Athena was born. 
It's a very very small world. Super small world. Oh, it's so funny. um, We're going to start doing episodes in the future on Space Talk where we talk about different kinds of events that are happening in different cities. And New York's going to be my first one just because there's so many things I learned there that are going on. I don't know if you've ever been to the Columbia Outreach event before, Astronomy Outreach. Um, So it's really fun. I want to find out if if, if it's it's reopened. I'm sure it has because universities are, are open again. Um, but basically, it's once a month, they'll bring in a researcher, they'll give a lecture for maybe 30 minutes. Um, the crowd really ranges. I mean, there's been like young kids in the audience, like 10, 12 year olds, and then there's like my age, and then there's like, you know, 50 plus. And so there's tons of different ages in the audience. And then we'll all go to the roof um, on this building in uh, at Columbia. It's, it's the, I think, the physics building, and they bring all their telescopes up. And then you're able to be on the roof at at Columbia and look at the rings of Saturn and the moons of Jupiter and just sort of chat with everyone out there. So it's, a, it's also a star party. Um, so it's fun. That's a, that's if you, fun. Yeah. If you ever want to do that, um, I'll, I'll look into it and see if it's, if it's uh, reopened or not, but I think it'd be fun for you to go to, but we are uh, just about, I guess all over all out of time. It looks like no one else wants to call in and, and ask anything, but I just want to say, Corey, uh, it was so awesome talking with you, learning everything about what, what you are doing and are about to do. Um, and is there anywhere where people can follow you? Maybe your Twitter handle? Oh, uh, you can't go wrong following me on Twitter. I'm, I'm at Corey S. Powell. Um, that's a S, S as in Stevenson's, my, my middle name. Uh, so at Corey S. Powell on Twitter, um, watch for Open Mind Magazine. And if you just search for Open Mind Magazine, uh, we have a just a placeholder page. It'll give you a little information about, about what we're doing and what we're up to. And uh, the Science Literacy Foundation also has its own site. We have a, a whole web paper, a, a, a white paper about um, sort of new ways of thinking about, about science literacy and the public understanding of science. And, uh, you know, I also... My Science Rules podcast with Bill Nye is still there on Stitcher and Apple Podcasts. Uh, my books with Bill Nye are out there in bookstores. And uh, I do some editing for American Scientist magazine. I'm sort of, I'm kind of, I'm trying to make myself hard to avoid. So <laughs> I'm literally typing in the chat every time you mention a new like publication or source. And I'm just like, oh, wow. Okay. There's, I'm going to put this all in the caption later. Um, even though I knew a lot of it already, but that's, that's, Great. You know, you got, you got to make yourself out there uh, and, and hard to avoid. Uh, that's so great. Um, okay, perfect. Well, is it, was there anywhere else you wanted to mention? Uh, no, I think, I, think, uh, I, I, th- I think I've done enough damage already. <laughs> okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much again, Corey. Uh, this has been such a great interview. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll follow up via email with you and just make sure we've got all the correct stuff to put in the caption. So everyone go check out his Twitter page. Um, go look at the chat uh, feature on right now and you can see everything else for in there, Science Literacy uh, Foundation and everything else as well. Um, but yeah, well, Corey, once again, thank you so much. And oh, no, thank you. This, this was a lot of fun. Oh, good, good. Oh, I'm so happy. That's so great. Um, And so to everyone else, I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day. And until next time, Ad Astra.